0: Let's move into 1 John 4. We're in a new chapter, guys. Exciting. Um, so if you remember, we came out of... At the end of chapter 3, We last week was kind of a recap chapter, recap section, those last couple of verses, where John kind of starts tying together some of the points he's making in 1 John 3. And then he mentions the Holy Spirit right at the end. And it's the first time we see the mention, the actual you know, verbal mention of the Holy Spirit in the book. And immediately, John is going to transition into... Uh, discerning spirits, and we're going to talk about what that, or, or uh, discerning or um, testing spirits, and we're going to talk about what that phrase means in a minute. Uh, like always, though, I, John continues to go back to uh, the farewell discourse of Jesus. This time, he's touching a few spots. John 14, John 16 is what I'm going to read for you guys. So I'm going to read for you guys like I've been doing lately. I'm going to read First John 3, uh, sorry, First John 4, um, 1 through 6. And then John sixteen seven through 15. So uh, you don't have to turn to both of them unless you're really good like that. Um, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come from the flesh. Sorry. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Uh, John's gospel is John sixteen seven through 15. Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but I will go and I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin, because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness, because the ruler of this world is judged. Um, All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Um, I've been talking back and forth over the last few weeks about John taking uh, the farewell discourse specifically, and and kind of expounding on it a little bit in uh, First John here. And I was just thinking about that this week as I was preparing, and I was like, you know. This is such a pastoral letter. This is such a father. Peter and I were talking about this at breakfast this week. It's such a fatherly letter. So caring. And what I was struck by is that John's, this is tricky to say because all of this is the canon now and all this is scripture, but John's inclination when he's comforting these people is to go to the words of Jesus. Um, he doesn't rely on his own ideas. Uh, he continually goes back to the words of Christ. Now again, all of the gospel of John is inspired word of God, okay? So I'm not, this isn't like, oh, the red letters have extra special meaning, but you have to remember also that there wasn't a canon of scripture at this point in time. So John is going back specifically to what he heard Jesus say, and he's not taking his own ideas and making up ideas. He is taking the words that he heard from Jesus and relaying them to these people to help them to be assured in their faith. And I love that. Uh, and I was struck. I was like, you know, and I think this is a good question for us all to ask ourselves is that when you counsel or comfort or advise other people if they're going through trials, if they need encouragement, do you, do we rely on our own wisdom, on our own ideas, our own knowledge, or are we leaning into the words of the gospel um, of the Bible? Are we leaning into God's word and are we pulling that into people's lives and helping them apply that and not our own ideas that maybe we're maybe inspired by, by scripture? Maybe we've got those ideas from scripture, but are we pointing people back to scripture, making sure they're going back there as the ultimate source and also making sure that they know, hey, God's word is sufficient to meet your needs. That's really big, guys. So let's make sure as we counsel one another, as we care for the other, other people around us in, in the body of Christ, that we are doing so centering on God's word. Um, just a little side note there. That doesn't, uh, that's just free. That's lanyard. Um So I want to start with this weird phrase, test the spirits. I say weird. Uh, and not that the phrase itself is weird, but I think that we can get weird about it. Um, what does John mean by this idea of testing the spirits? Because I think it can have this really like, we can picture like these nebulous auras and like disturbances in the force where it's like, test the spirits, you know, it has that kind of feel to it. Right. Um, or maybe slightly less new agey. It can be this feeling of like, we can understand it as spirits inside of us, like test the spirits. Like I have a feeling like, "How, how do I test that? Um, I don't think either of those things are what John is talking about here. I don't think these are internally sensed spirits like contending, like fighting to make me believe truth and error internally. Uh, I don't not saying that that never happens, but what I am going to say is that I think that this passage as we look at at the application points we're going to look at here, I think it lends us it leads us to believe pretty clearly that that John is talking specifically about the teachers who have left the church. I Remember the, the context of, the, of this book is you've got some teachers who have left the church and they're teaching some sort of false gospel. We don't know the exactness of it. Um, the indications are, and we'll talk about this later, that it it, it touches on or messes with the... In uh, the incarnation of Jesus of Christ, in the person of Jesus and his saving works, So whether he na- wasn't truly God, or wasn't truly man, or was only temporarily man, or was only temporarily God, there's there's some theories about what was being taught there. But the idea is there is a there's a denial of the incarnation, and John is addressing these teachers who have gone off teaching this this heretical view, and it's in that context that he's talking about testing the spirits. So what I want us to do here is we're going to look at three distinctions between the Holy Spirit and the spirit of the world. Cause that's how, that's what John's doing. He's like, basically build a sorting machine here and, uh, put like, put these things into these tests and see through these, I think there's three tests that are pretty clear here. Look at these tests and see where it leads you, and you'll be able to tell, is this the Holy Spirit, or is this another spirit? But I want us to understand that what he's talking about here is the Holy Spirit as embodied in teaching, as uh, what is the spirit behind teaching. And I think that's helpful to understand, too, because it helps us to remember that teaching has a spirit behind it, that there's something going on behind the words coming out of a person's mouth when they're teaching, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, and there is a spirit driving that And our job is to lean into the Holy Spirit and to trust in him and in his wisdom and to, to, to look into the word of God, have our eyes enlightened by the Holy Spirit and to present material, to present truth, to expound on truth guided by the Holy Spirit, not some other spirit. Okay. Does that make sense? Cool. So the first distinction I want to get into is that, and this is actually the second one that we see, but I want to start here because I think in some ways it's the most important. Um, The Holy Spirit confesses the person and work of Jesus Christ. The spirit of the world denies him. So if you look at verse 2, John writes, By this you know the Spirit of God Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. You all remember we taught on the Antichrist a while back and how it's not nearly as exciting as everybody thinks it is, uh, in this book at least. Uh, it's literally just a denial of the person and work of Jesus. There's not a single person. It's a, it's a, it's a worldview, essentially. Um, so again, you hear him talk about here specifically every spirit that confesses jesus has come in the flesh is from god Um, this is that heretical teaching that we're talking about with the incarnation Uh, it was called gnosticism or docetism which is like an early version but it had this idea of elevating the spiritual elements of the world and denigrating the physical elements of the world and not being able to come to grips with the fact that God would come in flesh. And so it, it messed with these people's ideas who had this separated worldview between spirit and world and, and lowered worldviews, uh, the earthly things, so low that they didn't have room for God to condescend to man in earthly flesh. Um, Christ had to be both human and divine for the atonement to take effect. Um, we needed a brother in the flesh to bear our sins, but a mere man could not absorb all of God's wrath and could not live a perfect life. We need both these elements. The incarnation is fundamental. Remember we talked about a while back, primary and secondary issues. The incarnation is a primary issue. If you hear someone saying either on the side of, well, God, you know, Jesus temporarily became God or um, there's a variety of, of heresies there, uh, that God stopped being God and came to earth. There's lots of variations on it, but you have to understand that Jesus has to be both completely divine and completely human for the atonement to work. Um, I do want to talk about one phrase that John uses here and it's, it's a translation question. Um, and you'll see a quote in here. I said last week, and remember, I wasn't sure about it. I said, uh, jesus wasn't jesus before he came to earth and todd nodded so we were in agreement Um, but this verse if you read it every spirit that confesses that jesus christ has come in the flesh is from god sounds kind of like it's saying that jesus came from heaven to earth and so i want to clarify here because i think the esv translation cloud muddies that a little bit Uh, this quote from john stott from his commentary on this i think was really helpful for me it says although john does employ the combined name jesus christ to speak of Jesus Christ as having come in the flesh would be strange. Uh, A strange theological anachronism. Y'all know what an anachronism is? It's something that's out of place in time. Um, If you guys ever remember, this is, I I will tell you this, if you ever listen to Matt Mason's sermons, Matt Mason has an anachronism in every sermon. He'll talk about the, the, the disciples like playing electric guitar or something he does it's like it's a thing that he does Uh, and and it's more just to kind of help connect ideas to the modern times but anachronism means i take something that didn't exist in one time and place it in that time okay Um, so john starts saying to call to refer to jesus christ as having come in the flesh would be a theological anachronism in other words that jesus didn't exist to come in the flesh um, since it was not until after the Incarnation that he was called Jesus. This being so, we should probably adopt the alternative double accusative, namely to acknowledge Jesus as Christ come in the flesh or the Christ incarnate. So it's not Jesus Christ come in the flesh. It's Jesus, comma, Christ come in the flesh. Do you see the difference that comma makes? It's a big difference there. It talks about, it's, it's, again, it's an element of the, of the Incarnation and the mechanics of that. Um so what John is saying here is that if you hear teaching that denies this incarnation in any way then you know it's a spirit of the world because the holy spirit is always going to acknowledge uh the incarnation of Christ in the flesh. Um John 15:26 this is from the farewell discourse but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father the spirit of truth we'll talk about that term in a little bit who proceeds from the father he will bear witness about me that is i think it's safe to say probably the holy spirit's primary job when you hear jesus talk about the holy spirit he is constantly talking about him um testifying to the person and work of jesus um here you see directly, he could say he's going to do lots of things because there are lots of other things the Holy Spirit does. We do have the fruits of the Spirit helping us to grow in sanctification. We have the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. Um, But what Jesus talks about here is the testimony of the Spirit to the person and work of Jesus himself. John 16, 15. He will glorify me for what, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And then from there, remember, he said right after that, all that the Father has is mine. So, the Holy Spirit's job is to illuminate all the knowledge and truth that God, the Father, has placed, has, has uh, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, given, is probably the simplest word I can think of, Christ, Christ, and then through the Holy Spirit dispersed to us as his people. Any spirit, as I say here, that diminishes Christ's person and work is a false spirit. Number two, the spirit empowers steadfastness. The spirit of, sorry, the Holy Spirit empowers steadfastness. The spirit of the world drives men away from God. Uh, this was the very first thing. It's, a, it's an easy thing to look at and glance over. Um, John says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Um, let's think about the mechanics of that sentence there. I think this is the clearest indication that, that John's talking about the teaching behind these specific false teachers, the spirit behind these teachers. Um, that phrase, gone out into the world, seems to indicate that they've gone out from somewhere. Everyone is born into the world. So to have gone out into the world is kind of a weird phrase if you think about it. Um, someone who's born is never in a church environment Um, never in in any kind of leadership position within the body of Christ um, or even in the church itself, can't be said to have gone out into the world. They've they've always been in the world. What John, I think, is indicating here is these are guys who, they were at least visibly part of the church. Remember we talked about the church visible versus invisible. These are guys that would have been visibly part of the church. You'd be like, oh yeah, that guy, you know, he's a small group leader or whatever. Um, And then, they have gone out into the world as false teachers. Um, I think that's the only rational way to read this. Um, we're all born into the world. So they had to have at least been in some way visibly associated with the church. Um, and that right there is a sign of the world's spirit, that they weren't still here, that they left. It seems really obvious, but they left the church. Now, what that looks like, we don't know, did they start a false church, they, they left. They went out, um, and John's saying, hey, notice this. False prophets have gone out into the world. And then he talks about them teaching what we just talked about, um, denying the, the incarnation. But then in verse 4, Paul contrasts that with the readers that he's writing to. He says, you are from God and have overcome them. So how did they overcome these guys? How, in what way, it's not like they have like a, you know, a boxing match or you know it wasn't like they overcame them by not leaving you got people who left who said y'all should come over here and believe this new thing and these people said no thank you that's heretical i'm gonna stay here that is a massive overcoming for these people um, and john draws attention to it as evidence of the work of the spirit in them um Staying around seems like a little thing to be grateful for and to encourage someone with. Um, but I think we, owe, we underestimate its importance. Um, how much attention do you pay towards how you encourage others? And do you look for little ways to encourage people? Um, what is the standard for someone to reach to receive your encouragement? Do they have to do big, great things for you to say, wow, awesome, you've done a great job? Or, wow, I can see God's work in you because you did this, because you accomplished this thing, because you taught this thing, because you led this thing, because you led this person to Christ, because your alpha table was banging? Or do you encourage someone? who's like, "I, I appreciate your faithfulness. You're here every week. I appreciate the fact that you are steadfast in the doctrine that you hold, that when I talk to you, you sound like Jesus. Like, let's let's lower our threshold for encouragement of others and let's look for little ways to encourage each other. Like, wow, I noticed God doing this in you. I appreciate that you've been in this class every week. Like, you guys have been so encouraging to me. Can I just tell you guys, I appreciate those of you who are in this class every week. No offense Miss saying I know you had an excuse. you had excused absences um, you had excused absences um, you got to have back problems to get out of this place so um, encourage I want you to hear my encouragement be encouraged i 'm grateful for you i 'm grateful to see those of you that are here every single week. Um, I love this word overcoming there's a, there's a victorious element in what in what uh, John writes here, and he writes it. In this sense of grounding it against the same, in the same truth that defends us against our own heart. You remember back in verse 20, I believe it was, um, where he talks about when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Do y'all remember that passage? So, this God is greater is the same, same word, that same greater word. God is greater than our hearts, and He who is in us the Holy Spirit, God, is greater than he is in the world. Um, I don't think we can necessarily make a one-to-one connection and say, well, then it's the spirit of the world or it's the devil that's in our hearts condemning us. Um, I don't necessarily think that's the case. But what I do think is interesting is that it's the Holy Spirit that overcomes both of these challenges. Um, I think it's important for us to know, I think a takeaway from this is that there are a variety of attacks that may come against your faith and some will be external and some will be internal. You will have those moments where you are condemning yourself in an internal attack against your faith, or you will be tempted by false doctrine in an external challenge of your faith. Um, Even what's internal, you may be tempted towards dismissing the uh, necessity of of the gospel because some of us may you know you may fi- be the person who self condemns and you question the uh, the power of God's uh, saving work and uh, and the the efficacy of the gospel but you might also on the other hand challenge its necessity you might think I'm I'm good enough. Uh, you may be tempted towards license because, oh, God's got me covered and I can just sin however I want. There's lots of ways that these internal struggles can come, just like there's lots of ways external struggles can come too. I think the point here is that whether, some, whether a challenge to Christ's work is coming as challenging its insufficiency or its efficacy or its necessity— uh, the good news is that God is greater than all of those challenges. Uh, God is greater than your heart, and God is greater than he who is in the world. Um, that, that verse, by the way, is one that we hear applied a lot, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's one of those, sometimes we can get sloppy with that verse. Um, remember what it's talking about here. It's talking about preserving uh, believers against false doctrine. and make sure that, Make sure that when we see words that we like, you know, uh, sometimes it'll be, like, hand-lettered on a sign at Hobby Lobby um, or on, like, a little mug or something. Make sure you understand, like, the actual thing that that's talking about because we can get sloppy with how we apply Scripture. So here what we're talking about is, is overcoming false teaching and false belief. Um, Jesus acknowledges this overcoming and its necessity. In, in 1633 of John, he says, In the world you will have tribulation but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the same exact wording here. Uh, and and just so you know, these are the, so Jesus does his farewell uh, discourse, stops at the end of chapter 16. Chapter 17, he begins his high priestly prayer um, where he stops talking to the disciples and starts praying about them, <laughs> which I think is funny. I still picture the disciples being there and just kind of like listening to him, praying for them. Uh, I love that transition. I think... I think there's a beauty in them hearing Jesus pray for them. I think we need to remember that Jesus prays for us too. That's, I, I, that had to be kind of mind-blowing. Um, but these are Jesus' last words in his farewell discourse. Um, and he acknowledges two things. He acknowledges the trials and tribulations that they're going to face, that we're going to face so he gives them an acknowledgement of that. He doesn't want them to be surprised by that. He doesn't want them to be caught off guard and confused and think that they're missing the boat when they face trials and tribulations. But he also wants them to know that he has overcome that that they can have confidence in him and in his work, even as they acknowledge the difficulty that comes in the world. <sighs> Lastly, the Holy Spirit tunes the heart towards truth the spirit of the world tunes the heart towards the world's lies. This is verses five and six. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. This they is those false teachers. Okay. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. when we hear spirit of truth, we know the Holy Spirit. Jesus refers to him a couple times in that uh, with that phrasing there. So John has heard Jesus use those words and is applying them here. The spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Error is a bit of a morally neutral word um, that I don't think does this Greek word justice. Um, the, the real wording here uh, the meaning of this word "planis" is to mislead people as to proper views which they should have. It may often be expressed idiomatically to twist people's thoughts, to cause what is false to seem like what is true, to make a lie appear true, to dig away the truth, or to cover the eyes. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture and outside of Scripture, this same word is translated fraud, deceit, delusion. And wandering. Uh, it's actually derivative from, we don't know a whole lot about this, we don't, there's not a whole lot of writing about her, but there is a Greek mythological goddess, Planes, who is the god of error, the god of deceit, the goddess of deceit, um, causes wandering. So that's the word that's, that, that this Greek word comes from. So it's the spirit of deception, of fraud, of causing one to miss the mark and wander off. Uh, it is not a morally neutral word. It's like, oh, the spirit got it wrong. No, there is an intentional intentional deception here. This is not an honest mistake. These are attacks against the person of work of Jesus, and they are intentionally deceptive. That said, we must be careful here. I don't think we can necessarily say that the teachers teaching these things knew that they were being deceptive. They very well themselves may have been deceived. Um, they may have been deceived by other teaching and we're kind of paying it forward, if you will. Um, very often we can hear false teaching from men and women who genuinely believe what they're teaching. I don't think there's a lot of people out there who are like intentionally teaching things that they don't believe are true. There's not a whole lot of gain in that. What happens is something can start to become overweighted in you know in one doctrinal category or another. And all of a sudden, in order to stay true to that thing, we can dismiss, or a teacher can dismiss other things and be like, this I I really fell in love with this element of, of doctrine. This thing over here is a bit of a problem for that. It's a tension that I don't know how to handle. So I'm just going to start to minimize that, and then eventually I just don't need it anymore. And it's gone. And now I'm really majoring in this. Because um, what you see from these Gnostics is an imbalanced gospel. You can see in some of the, the Gnostic teachings that they are trying at one point to make this Gnostic worldview fit with the gospel. They just don't, you just can't do it. Uh, cause that fundamental underpinning that spirit behind it is a spirit of error of deception. But if you try to make the gospel fit into it, you can't. So you have to start getting rid of things. And so you get rid of the incarnation of Jesus. Cause that's the only way to really make that work. Um, we need to be careful ourselves too. We all have predispositions, things that we just like to talk about like to learn about. Um, and when we find a book that we love or an author that, that we love outside of scripture, um, we can sometimes fall so in love with that idea that we we lose balance and we start to discount or ignore other elements of God's word that are equally true. Uh, and that's how we create an imbalance. And eventually it can become the spirit of error because what I'm doing there is I'm not letting the word of God be the authority over me and determine what I believe. What I'm doing is I'm saying, I like this part of God's word. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to run God's word through this filter of me and what I like. And whatever comes out, we keep and we teach, or we keep and we believe. And whatever gets strained out, I just don't have much place for that, sorry. We need to be in a place where God's word is the filter through which we run our beliefs. And I run through and I can come into things like the grace of God and his expectations of my obedience. And I can be like, I don't know how those two things work together all the time. And God's like, you got to do them both. And you have to believe in my grace and you have to apply it. Um, That's good. If we don't ever feel any of those tensions in how we approach God's word, we're probably getting imbalanced. We're probably ignoring things that we don't like. Um, that's what was happening here. These teachers probably started out well-meaning. They probably started out thinking, "I really, uh, I like this element of the gospel, but I don't understand how how God, how Christ's incarnation plays into that." And because it became too much of a fly in their ointment, they just disregarded it. Um, they were deceived, and they were passing that deception on. Um, John fourteen sixteen through seventeen. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be in you. That's the abiding piece that we've talked about so much uh, in this book. There There is an abiding personal knowledge of God that is the foundation for the facts that we know about god Uh, it seems like the real problem here was that these folks never really knew god they knew some stuff about god but they didn't really know god they didn't have an intimate relationship with him and there was no there was no relational underpinning to to help preserve uh, their factual their doctrinal accuracy Um, it's a reminder to us that's preaching and teaching. And remember, we talked about, I had y'all all all raise your hands if you're Bible teachers, if you teach in any setting here, if you have kids or grandkids that you explain the Bible to, if you have friends that you counsel from the Word. We all do teaching. You teach yourself, honestly, a lot. Um, It is not spiritually or morally neutral. It is one and the same. It's, It's an outgrowth of... A personal relationship with God, the actual abiding of the Holy Spirit in us—that's what our doctrine grows out of. You know, and in that sense, it's—I'm I'm not worried about us teaching Satanism here. Like, like somebody's not going to walk up here and like talk about how awesome the devil is. Like, that's—it's—it's <laughs> it's getting to know Jesus and and the person and work of christ that grounds our theology and as we get to know him and abide with him we talk like him we think like him we grow to look like him and that's that's the spirit of truth that empowers and enlightens good teaching sound teaching doctrinally right teaching um The proof that John gives of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is an affirmation of apostolic teaching. So that's his teaching, the teaching of the apostles who were there with Jesus regarding the divine nature, incarnation, and saving, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is, I I talked about this, referenced it a little bit earlier. When John is writing this book, this book is not in the Bible. Do you understand that? So John, like, he's not telling everybody, open up to the book of 1 John and read this thing that I'm writing to you right now. Uh, he's in the middle of writing it. This is not canon yet. And he's so he's writing, and his readers have a little bit of a harder challenge than we do in some ways because they've got competing ideas, and neither one of them is in the, the Bible. And so they're having to sort this out, and John's saying, you believe me. Remember early on we talked about this, what I've seen, what I've touched with my hands, what I've heard with my ears. John's grounding is that he is an apostle, that he knew Jesus, that he laid his head on his shoulder at the Last Supper, that, that he has firsthand knowledge of these things, that he's picked up the garments from the tomb. He knows what Jesus did, and he's saying, don't believe those guys. Believe me, because I've seen him and I know him. Fortunately for us, our job is a little bit easier, I think, in that we have scripture. We have the word of God recorded in canon here. That is our ultimate test for the truth of the, of the teaching that we hear. Um, we can discern whether the spirit behind a teaching is truth or deception or truth or error based on whether it conforms with scripture. If it doesn't match Scripture, it goes, guys, every time. If it doesn't match Scripture, it goes. And we have to make sure, like I was saying earlier, that we don't just look for things that match our picture of Scripture. We have to be willing to be humble. Because, again, we teach ourselves. So I teach myself about Scripture. And... If I hear teaching that doesn't match with my understanding of Scripture, that's different from teaching that doesn't match with Scripture itself. So I can't be like, I don't like the way that fits with how I think about the Bible. That's a different idea than I don't like how that fits with the Bible. That doesn't line up with Scripture. That conflicts what God said in this specific spot in his word. That's different from, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. So make sure that when we're applying this idea of testing the spirit behind teaching that we hear against scripture, that we're testing it against actual scripture, the real written word of God inspired by the spirit and not my personal preferences about it. Um, Does that teaching conform to the truth as revealed in god's word if it doesn't it has to go Um, and you know i recommend you doing this for teaching that you hear do that for when i teach like if i say something that's off base by all means be like hey you know god's word says this here and you said this and that's weird because it may challenge me you know again this is a spirit of error. I'm going to miss some things sometimes, guys. I already confessed to you guys earlier that I missed a boat on something. Um, And somebody in this class was kind enough to say, hey, have you thought about this? And I was like, yep, you're right. Um, Let us know if you hear something (laughs) in our teaching, me or Todd or or Peter, although not grammatical errors with Peter. You want to leave those alone. Um, (laughs) uh, Just don't have that fight. But me or Todd or Peter, if you hear us say something and you're not sure about it, ask us. Because we want to grow in our knowledge of God's word. We want to be further grounded in the truth. We want to be preserved against doctrinal error and imbalance. Because it starts with a little imbalance, but it can wobble further and further off. You guys are a helpful guide rail to us. You help us to know that what we're teaching actually conforms to scripture. You guys are students of the word too. So help us. Help us all learn and grow together to To have a belief and a picture of God that conforms to who he really is, as he says he is in his word. Can we do that for each other, guys? Cool. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this class. Thank you for these folks, their faithfulness, um, their kindness to me. Uh, Lord, we pray for Peter right now. Lord, he is back home. Thank you for bringing him home. God, I pray that you would continue to make him whole again, make him well. Lord, I thank you for the work that you're doing in his body and in his heart in this time to help him to grow more in your image. Uh, Lord, I pray for Todd as he comes to teach for us the next couple weeks. I pray that you would uh, already right now be enlightening and enlivening your spirit in his heart about these words that he's going to teach on. Pray that you would give us receptive ears to what he has to say and help us to uh, to grow in your image as a result of his, uh, his teaching of your word, Lord. Lord, help us as we go down to worship to, um, God, to be transformed, Lord, to, to come into that personal, deeper abiding with you. Lord, help us to know you better. Uh, Lord, and help us to grow. In Jesus' name, amen.